Bienvenidos a La Raza Chronicles. Welcome to Crónicas de la Raza. For years, we've consistently reported on the urgent issue of unjust immigration policies in this country. Now, at last, the whole nation is painfully aware of the barbaric separations of family and imprisonment of infant, youth, children, and elders. This has been happening for many years under many administrations, under the guise of bringing safety to U.S. citizens. This violence at the border is now finally part of a larger national conversation. While it is not the first time in our nation's history, families have been divided and children have been disappeared. This first began with the people indigenous to our nation and continued on through slavery and mistreatment and attempted genocide of many groups of people of color in this nation. But at last, people who have not studied this history are ready to speak out. We urge everyone to join the national protests this Saturday, June 30th. As UNICEF reports, the new law does not stop detention or return children to their families. This is clearly a moment to write or phone your congressperson and raise your voice. There are rallies happening across the nation. Here at Clonicas de la Raza, we ask where are the missing children that the border patrols have lost track of, and we want them to be reunited safely with their families, and we want a pathway to citizenship for all folks who are doing what's possible to survive in response to the U.S.'s imperialist policies around the world. On tonight's program on Legends of Chronicles, we feature an interview by our own Brenda Yescas, who speaks to Kiko Villamismar around his music, and we get to hear some of his music as well. Nina Serrano speaks with Paula Tejada around her work in the mission, what it's like to be a small business owner, and the incredible moves in Chilean cinema. All this and much more, stay tuned. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. Our guest today is the girl from Empanada, Paula Tejeda of Chile Lindo, in the heart of the San Francisco Mission District, where she bakes and sells delicious, fresh Chilean empanadas by the 16th Street BART station on the corner of Cap Street. Paula Tejeda also produces Chile-related cultural events, writes poetry, and is an outspoken community activist. Bienvenido, Paula Tejeda, to KPFA. Gracias, Nina Savano. It's wonderful to be here. So, tell us, what is it like to run a small business, Chile Lindo, right in the Mission District? Well, I always say that Chile Lindo must have the longest list of challenges of any small business in San Francisco just because of the fact that it's on the corner of 16th and Cap, which has always been a difficult corner and that is only getting more difficult rather than the other way around, considering the many changes that we're seeing in the mission. It's also a difficult product because I started with empanadas at a time that no one had ever heard of empanadas. Describe empanadas. There are many different types of empanadas throughout Latin America. They come from Galicia, where the empanadas actually open like a pizza, square pizza pie made with bacalao. But in Latin America, they were folded. The dough was folded with a stuffing. And I think this folding came from the fact that when the Spanish arrived, they didn't have cutlery. So they made a lot of the food in a way that they didn't need a knife and a fork because empanadas you eat with your hands. Chile is particularly proud of their empanadas because they celebrate Chilean Independence Day with empanadas. And empanadas and wine people have on Sundays uh, for lunch. And the way you find fresh bread, you find fresh empanadas pretty much everywhere. There are different types. Of course, in Argentina, they're smaller, they're deep-fried. Uh, Peru also has empanadas, but the Chileans always made it like their national food. The Argentinians have el asado, which is the barbecue, and the Peruvians are famous for the ceviche and the Chileans for the empanadas. But of course, now there are different types of empanadas everywhere, and you see uh, 
deep fried and baked and different stuffings in Chile and Argentina and Peru. And we're seeing them everywhere in the mission as well. And fresh kneaded dough with different types of stuffing, but the classic Chileans is onions, sliced onions, cumin, paprika. I use Neiman Ranch beef. I make a very high quality product, which is also challenging on that corner to have a gourmet product. Before you fold the dough, you put raisins, olive, a slice of hard-boiled egg. You fold the dough, and then you put a little bit of egg wash, and you bake it. It's a long process. You have to prepare the dough the day before and cool it overnight, and you have to prepare the stuffing the day before and cool it overnight. And then we assemble them daily so that practically fresh out of the oven when you get to Chile Lindo. How great. So you were talking about the challenges of running this business. So first is making the empanadas <laughs> at a very high level. Well, it is. It is a labor-intensive, expensive product that most people that when they come to 16 cent cap for what I've been told, an ethnic food, is why they expect it to be the price of a taco. Yeah, the mission is going through enormous transitions. And 16th and Cap has always been, you might say, a difficult corner because it's right next to a BART station. And there's always activity that has to do with lawlessness. You know, there's always been prostitution in the area, or was for a long time. And there were problems with drug dealers. However, the problem that we're facing as a city right now and that the small businesses are facing is mental illness. And that is a lot tougher on the business owner because if you know how to walk around your neighborhood, you let people do their own business. They let you do your own business and people don't cross paths. For years, you know, if you were dealing, I would just say, take it around the corner. People would listen. Now, when you have mental illness, there is no way of communicating with people that have mental illness, that are hallucinating, that are taking their clothes off, that are defecating on the street. There is no way to manage this in a way that you don't run risks and violence. And I've had my creamers thrown at me. Uh, I've had people throw themselves against the window, people get naked in front of you. And we're all dealing with this in the city, not only in the mission, because of the incredible number of people that are suffering from mental illness. And people are snapping right and left because the pressures are coming from too many different angles. I mean, people used to be able to sleep in their car. Well, now... They get enough tickets, they get their car taken away, and then they're sleeping in the street. And then, sure, when you're sleeping in the street, it's not going to take too long from being exposed in that way before you snap. So people that you would never think that they're suffering mental illness and they're hearing voices from the pressures that they're going to lose the only home they have or they're going to be evicted or the building is going to get sold to someone that is going to evict everyone in the building. And there is this overall general sense of feeling overwhelmed that I hear about it all day long because people communicate this when they come to the shop. And also on that corner, you told me that the buses from the Google and the tech industry stop. Yes, also... There's a lot of communities that are coming head-to-head -head in the mission. And one has been the shuttle buses that go to Silicon Valley. Well, first, a lot of people were angry because they were taking a lot of our parking space. And they have. I mean, the shuttle buses now take half my block. First, it took four meters. Well, now they had six meters on my block. And it turns out that it's a $120 ticket. Well, the people that work in Silicon Valley, you can also see that they're, they're in a daze. They're completely overwhelmed. I watch them get off the bus. They're either on their cell phone 
or they're walking straight to the bard or straight to their homes. They don't even look to the sides. And clearly, they come from utter exhaustion. So they're not contributing to the community that they're moving into in terms of being part of a neighborhood. Well, the techies don't walk the neighborhood unless it's to a local bar. The only people making money, as usual, <laughs> are the bars. <laughs> But because everybody ultimately goes for a drink, they're getting everything in, at Silicon Valley, number one, food, uh, entertainment, and they're going straight home, and then they order everything in. And the small businesses that work through these companies that deliver are also working at a loss because the profit margin that you have to pay these companies to deliver is huge. So the little artisanal shops like Chile Lindo are getting hit from every end, and they're disappearing. And you also on the corner of 16th and Cap are in the middle of the conflict between the community and the building industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. That has been, for years now, a war zone. First, there was a developer on South Venice and 16th Street. That developer had to clean that site because there used to be a gas station. There was so much resistance to the project that it was sold to the city. Of course, it was sold to the city at market value for an outrageous amount of money. And supposedly, the city is going to develop it so that it's 100% below market value. The problem when the projects go to the city is that years go by and you don't see that it ever gets done. Then on the other corner, right above the BART station, Monster in the Mission, those developers are Maximus. They're huge. I mean, they're out of Wall Street, I believe, and Skidmore Owens and Merrill is their architecture firm, which is one of the biggest architecture firms in the country. They want to develop a 10-story building right above BART station. And because it's right above a BART station, they can go a lot higher than the rest of the developers. Clearly, the developers underestimate the power of a community. They underestimated it when they came to 16th and Cap because it was clear to me that they did not know how organized this community could be. And there are times when I've had those that are protesting and the developers, everybody getting coffee at Chilelinda at the same time, looking at each other and, and talking to me about what is really going on, looking at each other with enormous suspicion and no communication. And the monster in the mission has not been able to get the permits, and it's been over three years that, that this has been going on. I talk to all sides and I listen to all sides, which is rare because people think that if you listen to the other side, you're acting like a traitor to whatever is in your interest. And of course that I have always been with my community because I think that's first. However, I also think that there comes a point when if you've negotiated a good deal, then you got to sign on the dotted line and not continue pushing the envelope because it just may backfire. And sometimes I think that if a developer is going to develop something with private money and they're really going to help the community, it's better than it go to the city because I have already seen how those operations go. And to be honest with you, Everywhere you go, there's corruption. It's not true that one side has more corruption than the other. So I don't know where this is going to end. Again, the ones that are most affected are, are the small businesses that are in that lot because they're getting pushed out. And they have to find a solution. They, they can't wait for this fight to continue. And one of them was City Club, a small bar that's been the longest in the community. All her patrons are working immigrants, 
and she's been put through the mill because she's had to move her small business across the street. She finally found a space. The developers promised to give her some money to relocate, but they're not going to give her any money until they get the go-ahead. So when there's no communication between the sides, everybody gets hurt as far as I'm concerned. So out of this Chile Lindo business, you also run a cultural operation. Could you tell us about that? When I landed Chile Lindo in 1995, I saw an opportunity to create a cultural hub. I knew that Empanadas was a road to really introduce other aspects of Chilean culture. And because I've always liked producing, I started building two businesses simultaneously, which is insane. Thought, well, the empanadas are going to generate the income and I'll be able to keep the production and the network going. Well, it's taken longer than I thought it would. But I knew that the empanadas were going to bring people to 16th and Cap, to Chile Lindo, that were interested in Chile, and I was going to be able to connect with them in, in one way or the other. And then when, when things were happening with Chile, I was going to be able to promote it. In 2009, when Twitter came, uh, I was part of the street food movement. And, I was, and that's how I became the girl from Empanada, because I joined the street food movement and we were going everywhere with food because the economy crashed and everybody was now selling food in street corners and parks and roads. I started telling people through Twitter where we were. That started growing my Twitter account. And the street food movement later became the trucks, the food trucks. Well, I was always building the network. And how you build the network is by promoting what other people are doing and what is interesting to other people. Because if I had been always talking about empanadas, nobody would be opening my newsletter at this point. But the newsletter is also a cultural outlet. But I also promote local artists, a lot of jazz musicians, a lot of people in the mission mainly because the mission is a community that is full of artists. But the focus is a great deal on Chile. And, and now I'm headed towards my most ambitious production, which is presenting Silvio Cayossi. He is a fabulous Chilean film director. He just won the Grand Prix of the Americas at the Montreal Film Fest, and he won Best Picture 2017. And the premiere was now in Chile, April 2018, Suddenly the Dawn y de Pronto la Amanecer, a film that was filmed in Chiloé that has everyone just touched at the profoundness. Cayossi is Chilean of Italian descent. He's one of the few directors that stayed in Chile during the dictatorship and filmed during the dictatorship. And sometimes, although his work political in a very artistic expression, he had a hard time there from many angles while he was making films during this period. He was very brave to stick it out and make film and, and, and actually stay there during that period. There were only seven films made during that period. There must have been period. tremendous censorship. Yes, and difficulty and no financing. Now Chile is actually experiencing a renaissance in the film world. Fabulous actors, great directors, a young movement, many films that really are showing what happened during that, the dark, dark period of uh, the dictatorship. And we just won an Oscar this year for a fantastic woman, uh, Sebastián Lelio's film, which a country that basically in the last five years, really, we've seen Chile produce a hundred films. And previous to that, for an entire decade, I think they produced like 10 films. So the leap has been enormous, enormous. And so what is your trajectory for this next event that you're planning? 
Well, I went to the Castro Theater. Our Castro Theater has people that love film more than the business. And so they're supportive in every possible way, and they're very excited about having Chilean filmmakers at the Castro because they said, we've, we've seen Argentina, we know Brazil, Mexico, and Argentina are the three countries that really have a strong film history, but not Chile. So they've been incredibly supportive. I'm so happy that we're going to have this at the most beautiful theater, huge screen, a beautiful mezzanine. And, and what will the event be? It's on November 11th. Sunday, November 11th, which is Veterans Day weekend, I believe. So it's a holiday the next day. It's a retrospective of Silvio Cayossi's work. And I will be showing his first film, which is Julio Comienza en Julio, which was voted the favorite film of the 20th century in Chile. La Luna en el Espejo, that I saw before I met Silvio Cayossi, I saw at the Joseph Papp Film Festival in New York City when Joseph Papp made uh, Shakespeare in the Park, he expanded his production to include film, plays, and music from Latin America. And I was so impressed with Luna en el Espejo, The Moon in the Mirror. And years later, I've always worked as a volunteer for the Latino Film Festival, so I always meet the Chilean film directors. I'm usually the go-to person that helps with whatever filmmaker from Chile is coming to the Bay Area. And that's how I met Silvio Cayossi. So in 2011, I told Silvio Cayossi, I need to produce a retrospective of your films in the Bay Area because people have to see all your films. Well, it's taken a while, <laughs> but the timing is perfect because now they're taking themselves seriously in, in Chile and also here in the Bay Area, people are beginning to hear about Chilean filmmakers and in L.A., actually. Pablo Larraín and his brother are moving their production company, Fabula, to L.A., and they hired the CEO of Paramount. He directed a Jackie with Natalie Portman, and uh, which was very beautiful film. So we're going to see more and more of Chilean film grow. And, and this, uh, this event at the Castro in November, I want it to be an annual event. So every year on the second uh, weekend of November, hopefully I can book the Castro Theater and bring a different filmmaker, a different film director from Chile. And that's why it's called Cine Chileno in San Francisco. So it's an annual event. And then on November 11th, that Sunday, I'm also going to show Descorchando Chile. And that's a production that Silvio Cayossi produced for the bicentennial of Chile when Chile, in 2010, Chile celebrated 200 years independence, September 18, 2010. And he created a television series called Descorchando Chile, Cheers from Chile, with Ollie Smith as host. He is a wine sommelier, host, television personality from England that traveled to Chile. So it's perfectly bilingual. And they went throughout Chile filming different wineries that are producing wines that are literally competing worldwide. And they're wineries that are in unique, very special places. Chile's always had vineyards, but now they're experimenting in areas that had never had vineyards before. So it's a beautiful series. And I'm taking five chapters. I can't do all 12. And then series, and then at night, Y de Pronto la Amanecer, his most recent film that just won the Grand Prix of the Americas, that, that competed in the Guadalajara Film Festival that just happened. And Silvio Cayossi just went to China. The film was shown there. The reviews through every day. I'm, I'm just watching how people are reacting in Chile after the premiere of this beautiful, poetic, long, it's quite long, probably going to be just a very special experience for whoever comes to see it. 
Well, we at La Raza Chronicles are looking forward to this November 11th event. And of course, everyone will meet Silvio Cayosi. He'll be here. And, and he'll be speaking. And there'll be, yeah, there'll be a Q&A and we'll talk. Oh, wonderful. So keep us posted. Thank you, Nina. Thank you so much, Pablo Tejada of Chile Lindo. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Nacimos de la tierra para conocer el sol Brotando de la lumbre como un grande girasol Crecimos de la tierra para cultivar cuerpo Gozar de la costumbre de nutrir el corazón Somos La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas. And I have in the studio with me, straight from Austin, Texas, via Colombia, Kiko Villamizar. Welcome to KPFA, Kiko. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me a little bit about the tour. How's it going so far? Well, um, we're having a wonderful tour. This is our last stop tonight and the U.S. leg of the tour. Uh, We started in Houston and we've gone around the whole country here. Uh, next couple of weeks, we're going to go to Europe and uh, and uh, fulfill this WEPA festival destiny that we have this year. We're going to go to Germany and uh, Austria and Spain. And then we're going to go to Bogota, Colombia, and then to Chicago. And then we end the tour there finally after a couple months. That's a whirlwind tour. Yes. How do you guys do it? <laughs> How many people are in your band? I see there's like five guys right here, more. Yeah, there's eight of us. Oh, wow. And you guys are all traveling together? That's right. Uh, two of us, the two maestros that play the gaita, which is a Colombian flute, uh, and, the, and the Colombian maracas, they live in Sagún, Córdoba, in Colombia. And I flew them up to the U.S. for the tour. And uh, uh, Maestro Elber Álvarez and Maestro José Paternina, they're from a group called Trapiche de Colomboy. They're campesinos from Colombia that uh, do this very well. And they're responsible for hundreds of teachers in the tradition that they've taught and stuff. And uh, he's also one of the top luthiers of the of the instruments that are traditional in the country. And uh, so uh, to assemble this, like, for me dream team of musicians i bring them in from different places uh, the drummer or the hand drummer the alegre player is uh shango deli who is recorded with carlos vives and is one of the best 
uh, Columbia Hand Drummers there is too, and uh, uh, and my and my local guys from Austin who are incredible Colombian musicians as well. I live in Austin, Texas, and we just uh, get them all together and bring them to everywhere this year so far. Yeah, that's that's exciting. I mean, you guys are from all over the place, and that's what I was going to ask you. You grew up in Colombia, but now live in Austin. I guess how did your experiences influence your music? Well, I am an I'm a Colombian person. I was born in Miami, but I was raised in Colombia. And then when I graduated high school, I came to the States to study jazz and then started traveling. And and I've lived in a lot of places. And in Spanish, you know exactly where my accent is from. It's on from one mountain. And it's like, oh, you're from here. But in English, I am an amalgamation of all of you folks from here. And uh, I've, uh, all of the that influence comes out in the music because uh, it's not quite traditional. I fuse it with the, the things that are relevant to me living here in, in this situation up here, too. Tell me a little bit about your new album, Aguas Frias, which means cold water in Spanish. Uh, how, how did it all come about? Cold Waters is a uh, it's the name of the mountain I grew up on. I grew up on a coffee farm and it's a it's a it's a rural suburb of Medellin called Aguas Frias. They call it a corregimiento, which is like a like a country part of the city kind of. Uh I call it that because I went to Colombia to write the album and uh and to listen to the birds on that are on the mountain. On that mountain, you can hear 60 different bird songs a day if you listen, if you just sit there in your hammock all day and listen. I picked 13 songs that the birds sang, and I and I used those as the first tiny little notes of the songs that I wrote. And I wrote the songs there, mostly. And then also I visited my maestro in Cordoba that I was telling you about earlier, and uh, wrote one of the songs there, and a couple of the songs in Austin where I live. But mostly I went to there to do that. But it's also called Aguas Frias because uh, I had some experience going to Standing Rock um, uh, with the water situation that there is in, in North Dakota that's relevant as an ax, uh, axis of change and how we look at extractive economy and things like that. And it just like was a very inspiring, touching and sad and angry and happy time and all these things together is a big prayer for the water, the whole album. And uh, so, and one of the singles is Aguas Frias, and so I just called it that. That brings me back to when I was listening to the album. I feel like it's very flute-oriented. It's like <laughs> definitely, you could hear the influence of the birds that you're talking about in the album. Is is that why you, I guess, picked the best of the best <laughs> to play with you in that in this album? Because you wanted to showcase the flute? Well, yeah. I mean, I'll contextualize when I say the best. I mean, the best along with the other best of the elders in the tradition that play flutes. You know, if if you can quantify it at all, just put them in the category of the best with all the other bests. But uh, they call Maestro Elber and Jose the, the youngest elders in the tradition or whatever. Los viejitos, como les dicen, los viejitos más jóvenes. A ustedes. Trapiche de Colomboy. And... Um, Originally, like this tradition here is more kind of like what a powwow is. So where uh, you can come and drink rum to this, and you can show it to uh, other communities get together and they sh and you know compete. As a matter of fact, they do. The tradition is to throw a festival where they compete in in this instrument and that instrument and in and in composing songs. And what's interesting there is that um, you make money if you win these things. So like gaiteros uh, work by uh, gaitero meaning the person who plays gaita these flutes they they uh, they compete every every year in these instruments and compositions so so hundreds of new songs are written every year for these competitions and so the tradition stays young even though it's old and so uh, that's w one of the things that happens but uh, but I picked uh, Maestro Elber because he's the person that I directly learned went to go to Colombia to learn from and things but but in general these flutes, back to the origin of the question, these uh, flutes originally in ceremony are for bird songs. You know, I don't know if I can describe exactly what happens in a ceremony and be accurate, so I'm going to leave it vague like that and let people research if they really want to find that out. But but uh, but they are bird songs originally. And now this becomes more of a secular thing, like a powwow, to share and have a party and things like that.
So one of the things I'm fascinated about is、uh, the fact that you're not only going to perform songs, you perform songs live during your shows, but it's kind of also like an educational experience. Can you tell me a little bit about how you make it more educational as well? Well,、um, it's you know I've I've been seeking the balance of how much to be teachy and not be preachy on stage, and at the same time just have a party going because I think I don't think you need to say much more than 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 this tradition when you play it. You know, you can see decolonization on stage. You don't have to talk about it too much, but I do do a little monologue. I've narrowed it down to a tiny one that I do in my set,、uh, but. The thing with this tradition is it goes hand in hand with education. My maestro is、uh, he, what he charges to teach is that you teach people, and so、um, well you go to his house and you, you buy a sack of food for the week, week for everybody and you know they just teach and、uh, the idea is to keep it going. You know, eventually when this music starts to make money, the idea is to have、um, cultural art spaces that we fund that are sisters in Colombia and and in the states for people in the hood in both places and in the Country, you know, so education is a really important part of this, of this, because it's an oral tradition that you know, you can't really、um, learn on paper very well. Talking about educating us, your music is very eclectic. In your albums, I feel like you showcase a lot of subgenres of Latino music, like porro and merengue and bambuco. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences between those genres of music? Well,、uh, okay. So let's start with the word genre. the The word genre means different things. I think different places you go in Colombia, like in much of Latin America, because of the African influence.、Um, maybe because of that. Maybe also for a couple of other reasons.、Uh, you divide the types of music in rhythms into rhythms. Cumbia is a rhythm. Porro is a different rhythm. Merengue is a word that means mix. That in the Dominican Republic is a thing, but merengue in the Vallenato world is a thing. But merengue in the Gaita world with the flutes is a whole other rhythm, and and uh, so uh, depends where,、uh, what region in Colombia you're in. That's the rhythm they play. Like in the Savana, where maestros from, they play porros and merengues. That's generally what happens. You'll hardly hear a cumbia out of them, because cumbia is from the Magdalena region. Of Colombia, bambucos is where my family is from, and they're from Antioquia. I mean, well, bambuco, if you really go back, is going to be an African rhythm that comes in through the Pacific, and it's they play it on marimbas and things like that. And then, for, and then,、uh, lighter-skinned folks, maybe some indigenous going on, and some Europeans, they play stringed instruments up in the mountains that that have that rhythm. It's a six-eight. They call papa con yuca, papa con yuca, right? Uh, uh, these different rhythms are just the representations of the regions, basically. And and uh, uh, what I do is, although it looks very folkloric and traditional on stage here in、uh, in Colombia, that's just some fusion that I invented. With that's, I mean, a lot of the songs are a certain rhythm. Most of my songs are like one rhythm. But then adding an electric guitar and a bass and a drum set, and also the phrasing that I compose with and things like it's not just the rhythms. The they call it the air. It's、uh, the rhythm is part of it, but el aire is is the like is the phrasing of the melody and the composition style and things like a. For example, Maestro was telling us the other day that the difference between a merengue and a puya would be. Uh, in the Gaita tradition, would be more instead of like fast or slow or the patterns of things. It's more like the phrasing of the Gaita and of the singing because the puya is more staccato, tuk tuk tuk, and the merengue is a longer、uh, kind of phrasing. So these are really distinctions that are very subtle sometimes, but sometimes there are big differences that are enormous, and it also depends whose grandmother you ask. Or grandfather, you ask like what one thing is called and what another thing is called. So it's a vague thing to try、uh, to 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 answer very specifically,、uh, a lot of times. But I think if I'm I'm like trying to answer these things when actually my maestro's right here and he should be the one saying these things instead of me. <laughs> so if you have any more、I、specific mean, questions about tradition like that, I'm gonna let him、um, pick it up. <laughs> So I, I like、wants. I like this interview, yeah. <laughs> Maestro, venga, la, la, yo le voy a seguir preguntando a usted las cosas que que me están preguntando tan específicas de la tradición. Estaba acá en la entrevista. I like this. 
eh, ella está diciendo que si puedes dar lo que para ti es una diferencia, entre ¿cuál es la diferencia entre una cumbia, un bambuco, un merengue, un porro? ¿Qué, qué, qué es eso? Bueno, una de las, de las principales diferencias es el formato con que se hacen la, la, cada tipo de música. Los, los bambucos, eh, los pasillos, toda la música que pertenece a la región del interior de Colombia, a todo lo que tiene que ver con los Andes, la, donde terminan los Andes en Colombia, eh, se tocan eh, más que todo con tiples, con guitarras, con bandolas, eh, más que todo la, el, eh, esa música. En cambio que la música del Caribe, eh, por lo menos lo que tiene que ver con los porros, eh, hay, la gran mayoría se hace con tambores, con gaitas, con, con flautas, o también se hacen con, con bandas que, que llegaron de Europa, con instrumentaciones, con trompetas, bombardinos, esas, todas esas cosas. Entonces, una de las, de las principales es, sería esa, la, los formatos con que se hacen las, las músicas. Y otra ya las, las partes rítmicas y las partes melódicas, que son totalmente distintas. Y cuéntame de los instrumentos que tocan, ¿dónde, ¿qué es la historia de los instrumentos de Colombia? Que eh, el Caribe colombiano, Colombia es un, un país eh, que para su extensión y para la cantidad de, de gente que, que hay, es muy rico en todas las expresiones culturales, por lo menos en el sector donde, nos, donde nosotros estamos, que es el Caribe, eh, el Caribe colombiano, la parte de la costa norte, este, se hacen diferentes tipos de música. La que nosotros hacemos es con tambores que, es, que vienen de, de, de descendencia africana. Algunos de los, de los instrumentos que, con que se ejecutan estos son netamente del Caribe, netamente colombiano, como las gaitas. Esta que tengo aquí en mi mano es una gaita larga que se dio en, en todas las familias étnicas de, de, de todo el Caribe, desde la Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta hasta el Valle de Aburrá en Antioquia. Y eso abarca todos los departamentos que están ahí intermedios, como lo son el Atlántico, este, Bolívar, Sucre, Córdoba y parte de, del norte de Antioquia. Entonces, este, nosotros hacemos música de gaitas y eh, el formato es Gaitas largas, hembra y macho y, y maracas, que es el aporte indígena. Y la parte de tambores, que es el, el aporte del, del negro africano. Pero este, la cumbia eh, y el porro y, y todas estas manifestaciones tienen una mezcla étnica que, que lleva tanto negra como blanca como indígena. Entonces lo especial de, de esto es que es una mezcla porque las gaitas, eh, originalmente, eh, mucho antes de la llegada de los españoles, ya existían. Y ahí se han encontrado en, en excavaciones arqueológicas algunas figuras que parecen que tuvieran eh, ese instrumento, en, eh, este, que la estuvieran tocando, y son figuras que datan de muchos, de muchos años, de mucho antes de, del descubrimiento de América. Entonces, estos indígenas utilizaban las gaitas como instrumentos rituales y luego cuando llega y llevan a los negros africanos para, para tenerlos como esclavos, algunos se pierden, se van, de lo, se salen del yugo que le tenían los españoles y forman lo que hoy en día se llaman palenques. Los palenques son asentamientos negros donde, donde fueron libres San Basilio de Palenque, que es un un lugar cerca a Cartagena, se dice que fue el primer pueblo libre de América y es un pueblo netamente negro. Y este, los, los negros empezaron a hacer su, sus tambores con los materiales que encontraban en el medio y estos tambores los utilizaban como medios de comunicación con los otros negros y marrones que se, que se iban al monte. Entonces, ¿qué pasa? Que ya después, pasado el tiempo, ya usted sus tambores también los comienzan a hacer para sus fiestas y sus rituales y todas sus cosas. Este, va, llega a un punto donde convergen tanto la parte indígena como la parte este, negra y, ya, y la parte también este, española y se, se fusionan en lo que 
hoy en día nosotros hacemos con la cumbia, el porro y todas estas manifestaciones del Caribe. Wow, gracias por toda esa historia. <laughs> <laughs> pues vamos a tocar dos canciones. We're gonna play two songs. Nico, dime cuáles canciones vamos a tocar. Tell me what songs are we gonna play. Well, uh, we'll do the single, of course, Aguas Frias. It's the title track. First, I'd like to try to do El Arbolito. El Arbolito is a song uh, that I wrote because when I went to go meet this uh, maestro for the first time, uh, I, w I watched a rehearsal of his band. Uh, when when uh, when I went to go see them, they were rehearsing under this mango tree, and it was a, it's a really hot place where they rehearse. And I was very grateful to the tree for the for the shade for their rehearsing for the 20 years 25 years that their their group has been rehearsing there, and uh, and so I wrote a, a song to offer to the tree for to barter for the shade for all, all that time. And uh, and uh, it so happens that when uh, when I recorded the album, I had my maestro record the flutes and his band record the hand drums, and. Uh, And that was, uh, they say, the the song that they had the most fun recording because they understood it because it was the closest to the tradition that they play like that. So uh, this is a merengue, gaitero, called uh, El Arbolito. <laughs> Es 
Aguas Frias, the name of the album is because it's the mountain where I grew up, named Aguas Frias, which is a part outside of Medellin. And, uh, and also, Aguas Frias is a prayer for the water, the whole album. And then um, I wrote this song on the way back to my mountain from visiting my maestro, from learning over there, um, because uh, what they eat over there is totally different from what we eat here. And I was really excited to go have the beans and the arepa from my mountain. So I, I, it was kind of an ode to, to the food I was going to eat at home. Uh, but and then it turned into just like what the album is really like the sound of it. So this uh, next song is called Aguas Frias. <laughs> Uh, 
el campo de la ciudad. That was on fire. You guys were on fire. Thank you. Uh, I just want to let you know. Where can our listeners find out more information on you all? www.kikovillamizar.com. Villamizar, I left. It's a long last name. I did it on purpose so people will have to work hard. I'm just kidding. It's V I L L A M I Z A R. Villamizar, yeah. We, uh, Villamizar. Kikovillamizar.com. And also, uh, we're throwing a festival in eight cities of this kind of music, uh, of gaita and drums. And we're going to do it in Austin, Houston, Dallas, Berlin, Vienna, Madrid, Barcelona, and Bogota. It's called the WEPA Festival, the WEPA Cumbia Roots Festival. And you can go to WEPAFestival.com, W-E-P-A, WEPAFestival.com for that. And you guys are on Facebook and Bandcamp. We're on all the platforms because uh, even Indians got to have it. Uh, my music is on Amazon and in the Amazon. We got to have both. I can't thank you guys enough for coming here. Mm-hmm. It was amazing having you here. And I wish you good luck on the rest of your tour. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a, it's a great privilege to be here with you. You, you ask good questions as opposed <laughs> to a lot of folks that do this. Thank you very no, much. No, gracias. Gracias a ti. Feliz noches. Upstairs. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to stay up on our news, like us on Facebook, at La Raza Chronicles on Facebook. If you want to hear this program or share it with a friend, you can go to soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles and share it. If you have any ideas for interviews we should be doing or would like to get involved with our collective, you can email us at Chronicles at kpfa.org. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches.